I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, June 28, 2011. Coming up, doing a health checkup of the oceans around the world. And we discuss the evolution of teaching science and the science of evolution with Dr. Paul Strode. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science, starting with an area far from here, but one you reported for us uh, last December, right, Susan? That's right. So there's some alarming news from stunning West Antarctica. A new study shows that strong ocean currents are accelerating Antarctic ice melt. In this case, stronger currents beneath the Pine Pine Island Glacier ice shelf in West Antarctica are eroding the ice from below, and that's speeding the melting of the whole glacier. Ice shelves are floating tongues of ice where large bound glaciers meet the sea. The Pine Island Shelf is roughly 190 miles long and 30 miles wide. The study, which was just published in Nature Geoscience, shows that a growing cavity beneath the ice shelf has allowed more warm water to melt the ice, a process that feeds back into the ongoing rise in global sea levels. The glacier is currently sliding into the sea at a clip of 2.5 miles a year. That's about 40 feet a day. Meanwhile, Its ice shelf is melting at about 19.5 cubic miles a year. That's 50% faster than it was in the early 1990s, according to the scientists. The researchers at Columbia University in the British Antarctic Survey found that in the 15 years they'd been researching the ice shelf, melting beneath the shelf has risen by about 50%. Although regional ocean temperatures had also warmed slightly by 0.2 degrees Celsius or so, that wasn't enough to account for the jump. Pine Island Glacier among other ice streams in Antarctica, is being closely watched for its potential to redraw coastlines around the world. Global sea levels are now rising at about 3 millimeters a year. By one estimate, the total collapse of Pine Island Glacier and its tributaries could raise sea levels by 9 inches. Some scientists say that the new study reinforces the concept held for a while that warm waters, which are causing glaciers in the area to thin, occur because of subtle changes in ocean circulation, not just because the ocean is warming up. State officials are mulling a proposed 560-mile pipeline from Wyoming to Colorado. So a new study on greenhouse gas emissions from water systems seems all the more relevant. The study was just published online in Nature Climate Change. It claims that the water sector, including the transport and treatment of fresh water and wastewater, and the heating of water in homes, can't meet its sustainability goals unless more is understood of how much greenhouse gas emissions come from water-related energy use. Scientists at the University of East Anglia in the United Kingdom who conducted the study argue that So far, a lot of attention has been given to the need for sustainable water resource management, but far less to the growing energy use and carbon costs of water treatment and other technologies in the water sector. Some recent studies have shown that water-related energy use in the U.S. accounts for nearly 5% of total greenhouse gas emissions. The proportion is even higher in the U.K., In countries with very high freshwater withdrawals, 
most of the water is used for irrigating crops, which requires a lot of energy used to extract and transport water. The authors of the new study point to a perfect storm scenario that requires better integration of water and energy use. That is the challenge of increasing food production and rising competition for water is colliding with the need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Many people think of climate change with regard to how it impacts the atmosphere and surface of the Earth, such as temperature changes, extreme weather like droughts and floods, changes in growing seasons, and how these changes affect humans and animals. But often the impact of the world's oceans is overlooked, even though the effects already are significant. And it might surprise you that our personal hair products and flame retardants are among the culprits, as John Stewart with the BBC's Science in Action reports now. The world's oceans are in a dramatic state of decline, one much bigger and faster than ever before. That startling conclusion about the status of marine life was announced by the International Programme on the State of the Ocean this week, which brought together experts from a number of different disciplines. In one particularly chilling quote, their report warns that ocean life is at risk of entering a phase of extinction of marine species unprecedented in human history. Professor Alex Roger is the program's scientific director, and he told Science in Action that he was shocked at the condition of the seas. Quite a few of the findings really surprised us. There are a number of things which stuck out during the meeting. One of those was the redistribution of the Earth's gravitational field as the ice caps are melting, and this meaning that essentially sea level rise was going to be quite different depending on where you were in the world. Another issue which for me again was very interesting was the rise of these new pollutants, things like brominated flame retardants and also the uh, perfumes that we put in everyday personal care products that eventually end up in the oceans. As we so often hear, it's basically human activity that's causing these massive changes. In fact, the rate of extinction in the sea is the highest ever recorded. Overfishing, pollution and climate change are all interacting in ways that just hadn't been predicted. Alex Rogers says people must realise the importance of what's happening. I think it's hugely important that people understand that the oceans are critical for creating the Earth's life support system or, or maintaining it in the way that we're used to throughout our entire period of evolution, I guess. But also that things are going downhill very, very quickly and we really need to move now very quickly and very decisively to make decisions that will essentially change the trajectory of degradation that we see at the moment. One of the findings from the report showed that a rising carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere is leading to increased acidity of the oceans as it dissolves in the water. Now, that means that some of the delicate marine ecosystems like coral reefs can't survive. Currently, though, there's no global record of how acidic the water around the world actually is, and more data is desperately needed. And that is what's being billed as the world's largest chemistry experiment is aiming to provide. Schools around the world are being asked to measure their local body of water, whether that's an ocean, a pond, or just about anything else, and plot the results onto a global map. That global water experiment is part of the International Year of Chemistry. Who knew? 
The experiment offers activities for students around the world, such as measuring the pH and the salinity of their local water, constructing a solar still from household materials, and using them to purify water, and learning other ways to provide safe drinking water. The BBC reports that by the end of 2012, hundreds of thousands of children with more, from more than 60 countries likely will have made the same experiments and reported their measurements. The resulting map, the pH of the planet, will be available online for researchers and students to analyze. For more information and to join the experiment, go to water.chemistry2011.org. And for more details on the recent report about ocean health, go to stateoftheocean.org. Thanks to John Stewart with the BBC's Science in Action for that report. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Joel Parker. At its most basic level, science can be considered as non-political or at least politically neutral. Science is dedicated to collection of facts and interpreting them to help us understand the universe and how it works, the quest of knowledge for knowledge's sake. For that reason, many people, one may even say our culture in general, places a high value on being scientifically literate, or at least we pay lip service to that idea. But when the results of science end up contradicting and conflicting with other ideals, such as religious beliefs, personal behaviors, or vested interests, then science can become very political. Perhaps the two most visible examples of this politicization of science are in the areas of climate change and evolution, the latter where the discussion ranges from the White House and Congress to local school boards and textbooks. Our guest today has frontline experience in several facets of these aspects of science and education. Dr. Paul Strode is a biology, biology teacher at the Boulder Valley School District and has been an instructor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Colorado. Dr. Strode is co-author of the book, Why Evolution Works and Creationism Fails. Welcome to How on Earth, Paul. Thank you, Joel, and thank you, Susan. So, uh, your book has a pretty blunt title, and we'll dive into that in a moment. But first, let's just step back and look at the bigger picture of science education. Um, there are often news stories about how the U.S. compares to other countries in education. Uh, the comparison often isn't flattering. The U.S. is falling behind, etc. As a science teacher, what is your perspective on this issue? Well, on this issue, I... Teaching in Boulder, we we kind of live in in a bit of a bubble, and so things here aren't aren't reality for for what the rest of the country um, shows, and um, and this is it's an interesting question because when you when you do break out of places like Boulder and and you look at the at the nation in general, um, you find that the teaching of science is pretty pathetic, um, and. There was a book published recently by Eric Pletzer and Michael Berkman titled um, Evolution, Creationism, and the Battle to Control America's Classrooms. And in that, they um, they analyzed thousands and thousands of, of surveys um, of, of how people um, understand science in general and evolution in particular. And 
um, found that that more than 50% of the the college graduates in the United States reject evolution as as a reasonable explanation for why there are so many different kinds of so things. So what percentage was that? That was more than 50%. More than half. Right, more than half. And so then, you know, you ask, well, what's what is the cause? What's the root of that? And so they found that 60% of teachers, which they call the cautious 60%, are either teaching creationism um, and not evolution, teaching both, um, avoiding the 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 teaching of evolution completely, not um, not teaching anything, or um, or allowing for the the conversation of of creationism versus evolution in the classroom, in the science classroom. Um, and so, so because biology is is most likely the only science that that a lot of students will get. Twenty five percent of the students in the U.S. will have biology as their only science class. Um, if they don't learn how science works um, in biology, then they probably are going to graduate from high school without knowing anything about how science works. Now, the the Colorado academic standards explicitly call out, I think, in the fourth, seventh grades in high school, um, that graduates are expected to understand and explain how biological evolution accounts for the unity and diversity of living organisms. Uh, that's a quote I pulled out of it. So it seems like at least in that biology class, if that's the only class they take, that evolution is in fact very integrated into the curriculum. I mean, it sounds as basic as, it's at the same level of basic as Newton's laws in understanding atoms. Sure. So that implies that at least the Colorado standards feel that evolution is as basic, fundamental, and a fact as gravity and atoms. Of course. And most state standards... Um, and, and I'm not familiar with all, but most state standards reflect the national standards, which reflect which are um, Colorado's based on the national standards. But yet, um, the Colorado Department of Education isn't in my classroom every day, and so I can do really whatever I want. And and the the only way that that anyone would would find out about what goes on in my classroom is if one of my students went home and, and at dinner talked about what he or she was or was not learning in biology. And then a parent decided that that was a problem and, you know, maybe called the principal and, and so on and so forth. Um, but but the big problem is there there just isn't anyone watching and making sure that what's being taught in the classroom is what is supposed to be taught in the classroom. So that ties into the study you were talking about where some teachers, in spite of what the standards might be, some teach creationism. Some avoid the topic altogether, I assume, mm-hmm. to avoid controversy in the classroom, perhaps. Sure, sure. Or maybe some of the teachers don't understand it well enough to feel comfortable to teach it. Exactly. And that was me when I first started teaching. Oh, really? And, yes, yeah, so I went to a, a small college in, in north-central Indiana um, where I got a little bit of evolution, but not enough that I was confident to field questions that challenged evolution. And so in my very first year of teaching, I had that classic moment where um, we were, the next day would begin the chapter on evolution. And um, and one of my students dropped a bunch of pamphlets on my desk and said, what do you think about these questions? You know, and the, they were the, creationism. Oh, exactly. You know, the horse was created to carry things for man and to carry man and et cetera and et cetera. And I had no answer, absolutely no answer. 
And yep. that's an uncomfortable moment. Exactly. So I was one of the cautious 60% when I first started teaching. Um, I blasted through that chapter of evolution and never looked back. And I also left it to at the very end of the year. And a lot of teachers do that, which makes it more likely that they'll run out of time. Right. So now that you have perhaps a little more experience, do you, I mean, in Boulder, the bubble of Boulder, whatever sure. that means, do yeah. you still have students who challenge you with creationist ideas? Not students and, um, and the occasional parent. Um, and, and so I can only remember specifically one parent um, during parent-teacher conferences. Um, or not, no, it was during our open house. And, uh, and he asked me if I taught other explanations for evolution. And I said, like, what? And other said, explanations being a code word exactly, for, right. Exactly. Like what? Like, like creationism. And I said, well, I teach science. And, and so I only teach the scientific explanations. And he pressed me a little bit further. And that was um, a few months before the book came out. And I said, well, in fact, I've written a book. Um, it comes out in June. And I encourage you to get a copy if you want to know um, how I teach evolution and the science of evolution in the classroom. So I gather your your feeling is that a teacher shouldn't try to be neutral in the classroom on Absolutely this topic. not. A teacher should teach science. And evolution is just as much of a science as meteorology um, or astronomy. And, and so, you know, our, in, in fact, um, the, the, the answers we get from evolution are, are perhaps more powerful than, than the answers we have about how to predict the weather. Um, it's it's based on on deeper theory than than meteorology, and and yet um, anyone, regardless of their of their belief systems, will accept the weather forecast. <laughs> and but 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 that same person will reject the answers we get from evolution because of of some controversy with their belief system, some conflict with their belief system. Yeah. It, it's it's just a theory after all sure. explain explain the difference between the fact of evolution and the theory of evolution okay so so the evolution happens evolution is something it's it's observable we can, we've observed it we can we can see it happen in real time we can see evidence of evolution in the fossil record etc cetera, etc cetera. so so something that has been observed is fact it's an observable fact evolution happens um, the the theory comes from how that particular fact happened, and and that's where we we then we then explain using um, all of these different explanations for explaining that fact. And so we've got natural selection is is one of the mechanisms that explain the fact of an evolutionary event. Um, mutation is another explanation. Um, a process called genetic drift is another explanation. Gene flow; um, those are all those are all theoretical explanations for these facts of evolution. So, a good theory can make falsifiable predictions. Sure. What falsifiable predictions has evolution theory provided us? Um, well, for example, one of the I, I think most one of the recent most fascinating predictions um, comes from. Uh, from paleontology, where um, scientists knew that there had to be a transitional fossil between fish and and uh, and tetrapods, the four-limbed creatures walking on on land, and and they knew about when in the fossil record that 
transition occurred. They knew what kind of habitat that had to be. And so, so they studied the geology and, and realized that these particular rocks, if there were fossils, these particular rocks existed in, I, th- I believe it's northern Canada, way, way up above the Arctic Circle. And so they went and they tested that hypothesis and they, they spent um, a couple of years looking, and I guess it was two weeks before the end of their last field season. They're running out of money. And, um, and one of them noticed the snout of what's called tiktaalik sticking out of a hillside. And, and it was exactly what they had predicted they would find in, in exactly the same, the age rocks, the kind of habitat that the rocks were, were formed in. Um, so that's a way that we can test an evolutionary hypothesis. Um, Intelligent design and creationism must have some hypotheses that can be predicted, or do they? Well, they do, but they're not falsifiable. And and so so if 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 you if you you ask the question, um, how did this particular structure come about? And and the answer is, well, a creator did it. Well, I I can't I, I can't falsify that. Um, I can test it all I want, but I, there, there's no falsifiability. And that's one of the requirements of hypothesis testing is that hypotheses must be, um, they must be testable. They must be tentative. Um, and so that then, then allows them to be falsifiable. Well, uh, one thing that I've heard creationists use as an argument is something that they call um, irreducible complexity, that there are some basic units, whether it's, the eye or some part of the cell or, you know, using analogy of a mouse trap, where all the parts are necessary. You can break it down to some basic level where, you know, all, all the units need to be there for the thing to work. And so they argue it couldn't have evolved that way because you would need all those working parts to just simultaneously magically connect together at the right time to create the one working thing. An intermediate form is not useful. That's their sure. argument. Sure, and and that that um, that that's a, a huge misunderstanding about how science works. Um, and every every single irreducible complexity argument um, that is put forth, um, scientists take on gladly and show how, of course, the, you can reduce it down to all the bits and pieces, and um, and 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 they they worked in different ways before they all came together to work in the way that they work now. Um, different ways for different reasons, for different functions, um, for different fitness advantages. So you may have had part A working by itself, then part B... Working by itself. Working by itself. Sure. And then they connect, but how do they... I mean, eventually, once they're working together, they become reliant on each other? Or, or they, they become so, so much better than, than A and B alone that, um, that A and B alone are, are no longer as fit and start to, to disappear from the population. And, and so and, and you just have these, these effects combining and combining over uh, time is a big deal, too, over hundreds of millions of years of evolution. Well, if you want to hear more about this, you can get uh, Paul Strode's book. It's called Why Evolution Works and Creationism Fails, which he co-wrote with Matt Young. So we've been talking with Paul Strode, biology teacher and co-author of the book. Thank you very much for coming in, Paul. Thank you, Joel. 
That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Wassinger produced it. Additional music by County Road X. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org. Podcasts of our shows are available there and through iTunes. And for you musicians out there, the contest for our theme song is still accepting entries through July 12th. More information is on our website at howonearthradio.org slash contest. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker.